1: hello everyone welcome to another episode of invoking witchcraft i am britain one of your co-hosts and i am at archaic honey on the instagrams
0: and they are here with jay allen cross also known as at oregon wood Witch, on the instagrams as well how is it going britain
1: it's smoky smoky as heck the <coughs> wildfires have started and it's only july <sighs> and wildfire Uh, season doesn't traditionally start this early so you know climate crisis we're in it it's happening
0: just directly in the center of it i was hoping that since like all of oregon burned down last year that there would not be anything else to burn this year but apparently there's plenty because it's already starting up oh yeah Uh. But we, How are are you? Ready. we are ready for the fires. We have our evacuation thing put together. We're putting together the bags because it ain't going down the same way it went down last year. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm ready. putting
1: together a little evacuation kit and extra food for my dog, water, gas cans for cooking, just making sure I have all my bases covered and a mask.
0: Yes ordered those Mm -hmm. this year smoke grade mask because last year they're like yeah even if you're inside the smoke is seeping in and also we have no medical data for what this could possibly be doing to you so good luck so we're going to hold it together this year um i have a candle on my altar right next to me that just decided that it needed to act the fuck up um this is a St. Martha candle, so I'm not at all surprised um, that it's a little spicy. Um, but that's how you know the magic is working when it starts doing the the weird stuff. That's how you know you got it good. Yes, absolutely. Mm. All right, all right, all right. So we have a really amazing guest on today that I am very excited to get to speak with. I met her briefly. At one of my book sightings where she just swooped in and surprised me. I had no idea who this person was. Oh, and they have my book. I love that. Uh, and they're one of the sweetest little beans I've ever met and so, so intelligent. And they just came out with a new book. So without further ado, we're going to bring in a Ms. Via Hedera. Hi, Via. How are you doing?
2: Hello. Hello, everybody. Nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Thank you so much for being here. I have to start off simply by gushing about your book. Um, I I had no idea what I was getting when I purchased your book. I just heard a bunch of really great things about it and that I had to read it. So I got it. And this book is a small book. It's it's not very big, but oh my God, what is in it is absolutely amazing. First of all, let me tell you that not only is the book good content wise, and there are quite a few books out there that are good content wise, but you are also an excellent writer. And that is something that you don't always find when it comes to pagan occult books or nonfiction in general, you have an excellent way with words. And I want you to be really proud of this book, because you can tell that so much went into it. So the book is called Folkloric American Witchcraft and the Multicultural Experience, and can you tell people a little bit what this book is about?
2: Well, sort of entitled, but it's about the uh, it's about what witchcraft means to me as a mixed-race American, as a multicultural American, as a person who shares in in a lot of uh, diverse aspects of life with other people and has uh, walked with a lot of really fascinating and interesting people coming from such a large and diverse community and family. I really wanted to touch uh, bases with all the people out there who sort of feel like they're missing uh, parts of their identity or they are not fully accepted in the communities from which they have come from. And I wanted to reach out and sort of, you know, let people know this whole witchcraft experience that we have here in uh, the U.S., in in North America itself, in all the Americas, probably even, maybe even around the entire world, is a blend of so many fascinating traditions over time. And how they came to be here in America has been a bloody, unfair history. It has been based on colonization, imperializing. But also on on love and on the changing of times and traditions, on the blending and merging of people who come to meet over time. And so many experiences in America get overlooked. We don't really talk about that. And I wanted to reach out to people in America and say, you know, whatever you're coming from, it's valid. It's real to you. And Mm -hmm. I don't want people to feel stifled in who they are as a practitioner of magic or who they are as a person of faith. Um, based on colorism or on the assumptions of where they come from or who they should be, I want people to sort of reach for the authenticity of who they are. And I thought the best way I could do that is by sharing what I had to go through, what I learned, and how it shaped me as a practitioner.
0: Uh, Absolutely, so that's, it. that's wonderful, and it's a very honest look at the topic because you're right; it is a very bloody history, but also there's beautiful sharing that happens in it as well. And you you do you kind of Approach the topic without romanticizing it, but also without you know overly doomsdaying it. It's just a very honest approach to it. And we want to know all about you, starting from the beginning. So I'm going to pass this over to Britain, and we are going to dive right on in.
1: So I'm going to off road for just a second. I really love asking this question to our guests. I'm curious about your astrology. What sign are you?
2: Ooh, I have to ask. What would you guess? Just having you know, just having briefly met me, what would you guess? Sagittarius I get that so <laughs> often I'm not
0: <laughs> like usually that's, that's the a, first <laughs> thing
2: people say Sagittarius
0: <laughs> I feel you like with your sense of energy. humor It's like Taurusy, but also um, I feel like there's Some like Scorpio placements in there As well
2: I'll give you a hint I'm terribly romantic and Indecisive Oh
1: you are a Libra Libra, oh, sweet,
2: yes, <laughs> <laughs> like Marie
0: Kondo. I love
2: it with a new one. Curious, that's
0: where it comes out. I'm very like
1: cool. So, here's my other question that I love to ask folks that we have as guests on the show is what was your like oh shit moment about magic being real, and how did you feel you fit into the equation of magic?
2: That is such a great question. I didn't have that moment. It was from the get-go. Every household I went into, regardless of the culture, the religion, what they, what they had going on in their life, there was a small piece of magic that, or as some people uh, would put, superstition, um, which I don't associate very negatively with the word. I think uh, superstition sort of gets a bad rap, but it's actually a, a bonding mechanism between people. And what I noticed is that seemed to bond a lot of people I met is every household, whether they were Catholic or identified as Lutheran or Methodist or atheist or just a bunch of hippies, um, they had some aspect of life that they felt they could control through what we would call magic. And it was so normalized and it was so everyday that I didn't realize that that wasn't what was going on in pretty much everyone else's houses. Uh, so growing up, magic was everywhere. Um, Mm. Prayers, the power of prayer, the power of talismans and amulets, the power of never speaking ill of the dead or being very careful of what you say because you can, your words have power. And if you give that power to negativity, you can bring it into the universe. And being around people who sort of always had taboos about the way I was supposed to be living under their roof no matter how different they were, they had to be observed. And when you're the kid in a pack of like 15 cousins, you don't really argue. You kind of just do what auntie tells you. And uh, I had one of those families where you get passed off to family members a lot and they raise you. So uh, I didn't have a moment where it went, oh no, this is, oh wow, this is real. It was sort of like, oh wait, other people don't think this is real. Oh, that's surprising. (laughs) 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 Yeah, I I I really feel that. Yeah, it was, it was a kind of a wake up call to meet more people who were like, I, I don't know anything about these superstitions or these prayers. I don't know what, what, why do you carry Milagros with you? Why do you have these talismans? What do you mean somebody rubs an egg on your head? What does that mean? Like, and I'm like, oh, well, I mean, in my family, if you got a tummy ache, someone's going to make you like corn silk tea or... Or they're going to try this other recipe that works in their family. Or on one side of my family, put Robitussin on everything. Um, You know, (laughs) it was, everybody had their own ideas. And they all believed very firmly, without exception, that there were spirits. That this world was inhabited by unseen things that affected our lives. And that seemed to permeate the whole of my family. So because that was so normalized, that was my whole, uh, I always felt like I fit right in. Like that was where everybody fit in. Um, I only in my older days started to meet more people who were like, that's not my normal. And I kind of find that really fascinating. (laughs) Mm. Mm.
1: Yeah, I really feel that because I, reflecting on my youth and whatnot, uh, I grew up in the South and whatnot, and there was a lot of magic and folk magic around me. And I never really, you know, later on, I came into witchcraft through in my 20s, but I never really had that like, oh shit moment. It was just around me and a part of my, like my family and my traditions and whatnot.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I love to, you're kind of talking about, you know, going to these different households from different people and, and how they had different little things going on in, in their homes and how they viewed it and stuff. And you have a whole section here in the book that I, I'm open up to where you, you give a key To like which areas you're talking about, like north, northeast, south, where where you kind of chunk up the United States into into different territories, and then you go through the different the 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 different sort of practices that you might find. So things like um, fairy crosses, and then you say where those are generally found, like the south and southeast, or gun incantations in the Midwest, or um, you know crushed eggs in the south and southwest, which is really fascinating to look at not just these are american practices but very specifically what areas and you know the the different regions which is really fascinating to look at so one of the other things that we like to ask too or at least i want to ask you because whenever we're talking with um folk magic practitioners this word kind of gets muddied wherever we go so do you identify as a witch or do you identify as something else how do you how do you label yourself with the work that you do
2: i think the most correct term would be witch um Mm -hmm. i am simply a practitioner of magic but i believe that the word witch definitely applies to me i think i come with a level of moral ambiguity um that lends to what I perceived witchcraft really differentiates it from other magical practices and that uh, we are operators more for ourselves, our own will and what we're, what we want to do for ourselves. And there are places we're willing to go that other practitioners might have specific taboos against going. Um, I think mm-hmm. witches sort of get the freedom just by the virtue of that word of kind of exploring the darker places that mm-hmm. some people who who work in healing um, or in that form of work may not want to go to, it might taint their practice, but for a witch, they may not feel that way or have that experience. And I'm fully willing to admit that there are places I'm willing to go that other practitioners of magic may not. And I think that makes me a witch.
0: Mm. I like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. That's, that's important. And what's interesting too is is you're such a nice individual, <laughs> but at the same time too, you have just like a brief line in the book where you mention, um, I, I think it was like a motto or a creed or something that you got from your mother, that's something along the lines of leave no enemies standing. Can you, can you just uh, briefly tell us yeah. about that a moment? Because I was like, ooh, yes.
2: Yes, in my acknowledgement section, I uh, <laughs> it is a quote in my family, uh, leave no living enemies. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> Which is, if you can befriend them, you do. But if it's your life or theirs, choose yourself every time. Mm-hmm.
0: I absolutely <laughs> love that and I think that's important especially when it comes to this kind of work is that um that radical sort of self-reliance uh, aspect of it is is really nice and I I love that you're able to hold both as being someone who is friendly and kind but also will cut somebody I think that that's like something that more people need to do. I see a lot of people online right now who like really just boast about how they do all this terrible hard work and you know, they're just so scary all the time or whatever. It's like, if you're really scary, you don't need to be telling people you're scary. They will find out.
2: <laughs> that is true. I don't, yeah. I, know, I don't, I'm not exalting using hexes. I don't, I don't go around telling people you should curse or you should hex or you should work in any kind of uh, dark work or play in the shadows. I just know what I'm willing to resort to when I have to. And I know that, to me, life is all about balance and choices. Nature is neither friendly, exactly, nor hateful. It's it's pretty much indifferent. And the tiger is not making a bunch of qualms about hunting the antelope so much. So I feel like I'm a part of nature. And there are points at which I'm going to act in the natural way that my kind of mammal will. And I've got teeth. People have teeth. Mm We're humans and we will lose ourselves to our, to those animal instincts. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. We are animals as, as highly we, as we'd like to think of ourselves, there is some base part of us that is still wild. And I think that wild part of me is the part that's very much a witch.
1: Mm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Witchcraft feels so impossible to define, but I think you just really summed it up in such a beautiful way.
2: Oh, wow. Thank you. I know. It's like, it's one of the mm-hmm. hardest things. I'm trying to define it for me. I noticed that a lot of, there's rules. There seems to be a lot of rules. Witches can do, be this. They can't be this. Where I'm standing, witchcraft looks so wild that it can be whatever it is you are is the kind of witch it can, is what witchcraft can be. And I think, uh, the separation that I found for myself and the way I balance it works for me. And I, am one of those people who doesn't believe that there's a rule, a general rule in all forms of witchcraft. I think there's only rules for the individual practicing and they Mm. should follow those taboos and those rules because that's their soul that they're determining or that's their life they're working with. Um, so yeah, (laughs) there's a balance there and I'm trying to strike that.
0: I love that. Absolutely. we're getting so wise today on this episode.
1: Yeah, we are. So uh, for our next question, I feel this kind of segues neatly into it. Um, where do you feel the borders between folk magic and witchcraft lie? Uh, how do we separate the two or is separation necessary in this day and age?
2: I think most witches um, employ some form of folk magic in their work. However, many, many folk magic practitioners do not employ witchcraft in their work. I Mm. meet a lot of practicing uh, folk witches who fall on the more Catholic angle and working in the realm that I do um, in some regards wouldn't be fathomable. them. They wouldn't do that because they feel that that would be a danger to their soul, to the cleanliness that they're trying to achieve in order to work with the higher spirits that they are working with. And so there are many folk magic practitioners who are very deeply religious, very deeply spiritual in what they grew up with. And they wouldn't tamper with the darkness. They wouldn't dance in the shadows. And that's totally fine. But um, witches, witches do and can and will often. And so we can employ all forms of folk magic to work with us, to summon whatever it is we want. We get to absorb a lot of that from outside. And I think you know, folk magic, in my point of view, tends to be more of service to people, It tends to work more for the community and uh, like cunning folk do. It tends to, the reputation tends to be more positive, having to do with healing, having to do with accessible magics, simple fortunes and divinations, the little things that we don't grow up being told you're practicing witchcraft. We get told, oh, you know, you're, you know, playing with some cards or maybe rolling some dice or blowing wishes, Um, you know, just little things. Those are folk magic, hanging up a horseshoe for luck. Um, and yet witches can take that same horseshoe and wield it for all manner of, of trickery we can take that horseshoe and turn it into a, a curse if we need to but I think mm-hmm. that's what would separate there's a there's a definite border there that separates it and I practice a lot of folk magic as a witch um, and I think there's a place pretty much in any religion, in any spirituality for folk magic. And with most religions that I'm studying, there seems to be a lot more magic than people let on. There's a lot of magic in Catholicism. There's a lot of magic in Lutheranism, um, where places where people don't associate with magic, there's lots of magic. Um, Mm. So I would say that folk magic is 100% accessible to everybody, and it tends to serve other people, whereas witchcraft is more of a studied art, and it tends to serve whoever's practicing it in their own will and wishes, and whoever's on their good side. <laughs> that's yeah. Important yeah, that's distinction. <laughs> I would say that's the border. I remember, mm,
1: yeah, that's great. I remember growing up, there were women in my uh, church that I grew up with who practiced folk magic, and if you would have said that they were practicing witchcraft, they would have slapped you upside the face. So there is that, that distinction there. The folks who practice folk magic aren't always necessarily witches. Mm-hmm.
2: Absolutely. And I try to be very respectful of that because that appears in my family a lot. I've got a lot of uh, family that's Catholic or Lutheran. My sister's a witch or practicing. Uh, she considers herself a folk Catholic witch, um, finds a finds a balance between both. But I know there are other family members who they would never say the word witch. You know, that would be, Mm -hmm. that's unthinkable. Are they doing the exact same thing I'm doing for the exact same reason? Yes. Is it witchcraft to them? No. And I choose to respect that because maybe for them, it's coming from a source that is very different from mine. And um, I've got to have, I have respect for that since I was raised around so much of it.
0: That makes a lot of sense. I often notice too, that, the, the, the folk magic tends to be magic that people understand or magic that is kind of demystified or things like that. Um, whereas witchcraft tends to be sort of the, the more secret, the, the more shrouded and mystery sort of area, you know, because, you know, we've all thrown salt over our shoulder, you know, for luck or to keep the devil away or whatever. And people know what that is, you know, and, and since they know what it is and they're comfortable with it, then it kind of becomes folk magic, but it's the uncomfortable parts. That are the witchcraft.
2: I that's agree. That's kind
0: of the distinction. And I think that's really interesting. Uh, so. It's the scary shit. The scary shit.
2: Yep. The unseen, the unknown, the shadow. It's not a dark place <laughs> or a bad place. It's just a different place. And I like it there. Exactly. It's a hidden mm-hmm. place.
0: Interesting. I love that. So one of the things, too, we were talking about earlier with your book is how you kind of... Um, I don't want to say like chop up, but sort of divide the the US into different regions and kind of different areas with their different magics. And something, and you also talk about too, coming from many different cultures and kind of what your family background is. And something that I've been noticing happening more and more is as, you know, a lot of us are being called back to our ancestral practices and, you know, doing the magic of our people. Sometimes when it comes to being American, you don't always know what your actual ancestry is. And what I've seen kind of a new movement or an uptick in is folks who don't know their ancestry deciding instead they're going to kind of pick up. And a lot of times also claim the traditions of the land that they are on or grew up on. And I have so many feelings, but I want to know like what your feelings are on this idea of, you know, if, if I don't know what my personal ancestry is, can I just pick up and claim the traditions of the land where I grew up on? What what's how how do you feel?
2: Ooh, so complex. So loaded. I love it. Let's see. <laughs> I am a firm believer that. The American experience in that regard is extremely unique. It is so complicated. And when we try to compartmentalize each other into having the same experiences or sort of defining each other by our own experiences, we're negating an entire, an entire life that's being lived that we may not understand. And we're making a lot of assumptions about who that person is, um, based on their, what their, their perceived ethnicity, their skin color, um, what they pass for, what they don't pass for. And there is a level of disconnect that comes from being an American where you don't exactly know where your ancestors from, you know, there's a population in America that has a vague idea of where their ancestors may have come from based on surnames. And then there are African-Americans where that's not going to work for us. Our surnames aren't going to precisely tell us where in West Africa our ancestors had been taken because we have the names of our slave owners. So how are we Mm -hmm. to trace back? How are we to define? How do we know what that is? That is so complicated and so scary that I have an incredible amount of compassion and empathy for people who have to face that question. And I think the best thing I found to do is to be of service to the community in which I'm living if I'm that interested in being a part of it. And being of service means sitting and serving your elders, sitting with them and hearing their stories, even when they're from a totally different generation. It means immersing yourself into that culture and being of service, um, doing volunteer work, land restoration, working in community centers and volunteering your time and your effort to be a part of the community and help further it uh, financially, help further it culturally, help bring um, any kind of recognition to that community. If that's where you're going to live and you want to represent and be a part, then being a part of the community means service. It means listening. It means sitting and doing a lot of research but, and not claiming it as your own, but being very honest that this is where I live. This is what exists here and what I was inspired by. When you start talking to people about the, the superstitions and the folk magic in their lives and spirituality or just the spirits themselves, you will get people talking. People will share all sorts of things with you. And you will start to learn what is a tradition or practice that is closed and what is open to you. Uh, I think second to that, if you if people find that they can't make that level of service or they cannot immerse into the community because maybe it's rural, um, maybe there's that that distinction. I think the next best thing that people can do is really look at the common threads we share and sort of draw from that. If we think about it. Poppet magic isn't specific to a single culture. Lots of cultures have poppet magic. It's all over the world. So practicing with poppets, I would say, is absolutely clean. I'd say go for that. It's when you start to go into, oh, I'm creating my own gri gri here at home. Well, I mean, did you get training? Do you know the, the process in voodoo for that? That can be very complicated. And that's a very specific object that you're making. And without training, that could be some problematic behavior. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's just a real there's a difference between these closed insular traditions and practices that people hear about and they get really interested in because they see it on Instagram and they're like, that's so fun. I could do it. And then there's the basic stuff we all have access to luck charms. The stuff that was in a lot of things that are in the key, like egg charms, luck charms, lucky pennies, um, healing herbs. These are all universals. These are things that get exchanged between culture regardless. Mm -hmm. And I think those can be a great place for people to look if they're feeling confused about finding their ancestors. Maybe you don't have to look too far up and too far away for that. Maybe you take what about humanity, the things we share in humanity commonly in magic, and apply it to yourself and find happiness there. But your ancestry can't always define who you are, and it's not always going to tell you the real story. I mean, my family is a great example. There are a lot of there are a lot of dudes in my family who raised kids that were not theirs, and that's totally normalized. Is to look back at our our gene pool and find that there was a lot of inbreeding and outbreeding, and a lot of uh, affairs, lots of affairs. Um, and so, if we base everything on what our ancestry could be. That comes to a really confusing place for I think a lot of Americans especially those of us who are mixed and adopted Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but I'd say yeah number one service be of service to the people that you are emulating or that you are trying to uh, ingratiate yourself become of service and learn speak with their elders sit with the people Um, give your time and speak very little and secondly if that's not working then find the common roots Find the places in the land. Let the land be your teacher. The land has no specific culture. The land itself has a lot to teach. And witchcraft can be taught sheerly from observation of the trees, the wind, the natural phenomenon. All this can be learned um, Mm -hmm. without human intervention. But for those who want it, I'd say start with service.
0: That's Mm -hmm. so beautiful. Mm
2: -hmm. Amen.
1: You know... It's something that I've been exploring in the book that I'm writing right now is how witchcraft specifically in that vein really seems to have forgotten the service component of their practice and like being of service to the land, being of service to the people. And I also noticed that in folk magic, like the ladies at my church, they were, they were doing community service and yeah, just an interesting distinction.
0: Well, and I love, too, that you bring that up where it's like, yeah, OK, if you're going to be doing the traditions of the land then get involved with, you know, the people there in the community and help and be of service, not just find out what the spells were from the people who lived here and start using them.
2: Absolutely. Like, that's
0: very different there. It's like, so you're right. t- it's
2: extractive. It's, it's not a smash and it's Extractive. In, yeah. um, you know, in South Seattle, this is Duwamish land. I should have first and foremost acknowledged that right now I am on Salish territory. This is Duwamish land. I live next to the Duwamish River. And if I'm going to be living here and working and work these plants and learning, then the first thing I had to learn how to do um, when I started to do, go about this more professionally, um, more seriously, and, you know, not just being with my family and going to potlatch and working over at uh, Daybreak Star like we all wind up doing, but... Actually putting this into my practice meant that I needed to go down to Longhouse and be of service. I needed to go into the Duwamish restoration effort movement and do the side, the cleanup and wear the the orange vest and get the little, the little picker (laughs) to pick up cigarette butts. It also means replanting and um, clearing riverways near Schmitz park for the, for the salmon run. It means being very much in service to the people here who are not recognized by the government and who are not given their proper dues and respect because they are the original land stewards. And I have everything to learn by attending these uh, horticulture classes, these uh, sustainable landscaping of the Northwest, by learning from the people who best know what grows here and how to maintain it. Um, that's how I better myself as an animist and a bioregional animist. I have mm-hmm. to be of service or else what good am I really doing here? I'm just taking. Um, and I, I was learned that the spirits always must be served and in ingratitude. And that includes Mm -hmm. living spirits.
0: Mm -hmm. I love that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely.
1: I
2: love that too. Yeah. I
1: mean, a lot of folks have this connotation of witchcraft as like setting your candles and lighting your incense, but it's also wearing that orange vest and going out and picking up cigarette butts.
2: Yeah, definitely. Especially if you're mm-hmm. the kind of person who, in in earlier days in your life, may have contributed to that lack of care for the land, um, mm-hmm. you know. Which I think most young people, and we all go through that, where we don't care because we're so angsty and we know everything. <laughs> but <laughs> eventually, you get to the part where you realize you do you really love the spirits of the land you're working with and these beautiful trilliums that grow and these ferns. If you're not going out and making sure that. The used condoms and the Dorito packets are are picked out of there, you know. Mm-hmm. This this people this. I think it's really hard for me to connect to the land when all I'm seeing is human plastic garbage, and mm-hmm. to I don't want to walk around it. I'd rather just pick it up, take it to the can. And you know, go back to the land itself, but that's the Mm. only way I knew how to be to express to all these green growing things that I really do love you, I'm in this with Mm. you, I'll live and die here, and you'll my bones will rot and you'll eat them, and that's great. And I just want a clean (laughs) spot for that to happen.
0: (laughs) I love that point of view on that, that's an excellent way of looking at that. Um, yeah, and something too that. I think your book really brings up and kind of what you're talking about here is we very much live in a day and age where like cultural appropriation and avoiding it nowadays suddenly means have absolutely no contact with any culture that you cannot prove that you belong to within a certain percentage. And we're trending very quickly towards racial purity, which is historically has never gone well. No. And I like how you bring this up where it's like, yeah, okay, you can engage in other cultures, but also how are you benefiting this culture? Making it an exchange, not just showing up, taking what you want and running away, but showing up and being involved in it and and actually doing the work. And I think that's a, a much more balanced way of looking at it. And in the United States where we are so knotted together with so many different cultures and just our everyday lives, there's there's not a lot of ways to avoid having any sort of contact with other cultures or doing something that at one point had roots somewhere else or or whatever. So I I like this balance sort of how are we helping one another while we do this exchange is I think so beautiful and so needed right now.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we're going to um, not segue, but jump to a wholly other topic. And um, I'm an unpublished author getting there um, I've been doing, I have a massive book pile doing research for my book. And eventually I'm going to be reaching out and speaking to people and interviewing folks for my book. And I'm so curious, like as a published author, what was the research like for your book? Cause you have, like, from what I know of it, I don't have your book yet. I have it on order. Um, it sounds like, I mean, it's so much information.
2: Like, how did you do that? Well, okay. So at 17, I went and got a job in higher education and I stayed there until now at 34 and discovered that that is an incredible nexus point of information. If you work in the colleges system um, in higher ed, uh, it's incredible the access you can have to libraries, to university libraries, if your school has a partnership with them like we do with UW um, in my workplace. So to be able to have access to archive rooms, to instructors and to professors, people who are just willing to come to coffee with you and tell you some stuff they heard from their grandma, their mima, their oni back in the day, and to sort of like collaborate with that and bring that into all the vast collection of library books I get this access to and sort of find these roots. What are people talking to me about? These co- I went around asking instructors, professors, and community leaders that I was close to through my family, asking them, you know... What, what was good luck like to you? How do you feed the spirits? Like, Did you ever hear of that? Did you ever hear of, of horseshoes? What did you learn about that? And people were really happy to talk to me about that and direct me towards resources. And that's how I got um, directed towards all these great Southern resources, to Puckett, to uh, Zora, to the Brown Collection, especially to the Memoirs of American Folklore Society. Um, A lot of people were saying, you know, these traditions have continued in my family. We're all from the South or from the Southeast or Southwest look in these books, find these collections. And I went to the library and for the last 10 years, I started stacking up as many books as I could. I took everything I could. Um, I worked with the librarians to make sure that literature got filtered to me if I could, before it got on the shelves for the students. Um, I talked to the anthropology instructor and was like, I'm going to need a list of all the ethnographies on your syllabus (laughs) that have anything to do with American religious traditions or spiritual traditions. And I just started compiling document after document, 10 years, just compiling everything I could find from people mentioning it to me as a common folk magic to the books that could support where that was found in history. Um, and that really helped me find backgrounds in some of these things like rat letters that I, I briefly heard in passing, mm-hmm. find a bunch of research on it, realize it goes back way longer than I thought. Um, and that's what I did for a lot of the, the the key section was go, okay, here's the stuff I've heard of. Here's the stuff people are telling me. And here's all the stuff I found in the books that back it up or elaborate further. That seemed to be very common. Lucky pennies, not stepping over cracks, uh, blowing wishes, uh, certain kinds of plants are lucky. Um, you know, the, the horseshoe thing was real common for people. Uh, egg magic was extremely common, especially when I talked to Southwestern people, regardless of whether they were Latino or white or black. There was some, a lot of people I talked to knew egg magic. They knew Milagros. They had been to somebody to get healed. They had been slapped with plants and they knew what to tell (laughs) me about their experiences. And I thought, this is it. I just want to, I'm going to list everything people tell me and then find a book that references it. (laughs) And I'm going to write a book about all that. I did it. (laughs) And you did it. That was pretty much uh... the process. I sat in a library and in my house surrounded by books and just typed up everything Everything that had a connection to people I met.
0: Well, and your book too has so much in it and it is 149 pages, not counting the kind of indexing and and all that that goes on with it. So it's a little book, but there is so much in here, just like an absurd amount. And I love that you, you talk about, you know, how forthcoming people are about the folk magic because, and this is something too, that like happened with me in my book. And and it happens to me too, doing, doing the paranormal work is as soon as people find like a safe person to discuss this with someone who's not going to think that they're crazy. Someone who, you know, is interested in what it is. Suddenly it all just comes out because so many people have all this like pent up supernatural stuff that they don't get to talk about. (laughs) So I, I love that. Um, And you just mentioned something that I want you to expand upon, because I absolutely love it, is rat letters. Can you tell people what this is?
2: So rat letters. While I was tracing through the Frank C. Brown and the Memoirs of of American Folklore Society, um, I came across these quotes from Frazier's work, uh, George James, James George got that name backwards, one of the two, (laughs) but his work, the guy that wrote The Golden Bow, He mentions getting rid of rats and mice, moles and other vermin um, in this sort of like tongue in cheek kind of way, saying that farmers in Scotland and in France and England would write these politely written, very concise letters asking rats and mice to please depart the premises and go to a a place that was then stated in the letter, someone's address, probably your enemy or a neighbor you don't like you write, please go there. Um, sometimes you would just leave that on the barn wall. The rats are supposed to read it and be very intelligent and leave. Or you're supposed to fold it up, put it in a, in a rat's nest or a hole, um, slather it with butter or with honey or something that they'll eat. And the the idea that he presented and that was presented in these different forms of uh, folk magic I saw cropping up in Southern folklore books was this rat letter. You rewrite you, you the rats and the mice a letter and somehow they're supposed to read it and leave. And I thought, you know, this is perfect charm to adapt. So I started making my own rat letters that were foldable into envelopes um, and doing more research into that and realized that this was, you know, based on a, a charm that went back to Greece. Um, relating to asking rats to please leave the farm. And it was just, it's very tongue in cheek. It's not completely serious. It's kind of funny. It's giving them veiled threats saying, by God, I'll I'll come at you with the cats or I'll take a whip to you, but you'll get off my lawn, you damn kids. (laughs) And I thought, (laughs) that is so cute. And I, I started to adapt it for my own magic when my mom's house got infested, (laughs) <laughs> and thought, you know, I love that. I love finding the silliest old folk magic and adapting it. It's one of my hobbies to see if it works, especially stuff that's really wacky and silly, um, just to see how I feel about it and how it plays out. And Rat Letters wound up being really popular because I think most people were like, what the hell is this? Right. And I was like, I would never heard of it either until like five years ago and was like, this is brilliant. It's right. easily skipped over piece of folk magic, but it's it's up in there. And there's a lot of uh, New England folk magic referencing it. I thought that was really interesting that at some point farmers were legit writing letters to rats. And um, I thought I'd try it, too. It didn't work, but, you know, it was really cute. (laughs) I
1: feel like I should write a letter to flies in my home because we I live out in like ranching country. And during this time of year, there are just hordes and hordes of flies.
0: And they're big.
1: Ooh, they're big and they like buzz into you and hit you and it hurts. And I'm just like, good, good Lord.
2: I'm yeah, right out of here. I think I'm going to, I'm going to write a letter. It's got to be very polite. And
1: concern. Yes.
2: And you'll, you'll <laughs> specify uh, to the, to the flies or the Lord of those flies. Um, and you'll, you, you know, if you want, you can wish them on a neighbor or you can just ask them to leave. But you know, some of the old formulas specify that you have to tell them exactly where to go. So think of someone you don't okay. like. I got a couple of those in the neighborhood. Hmm. Bingo. Let's
0: move them a few doors down and it'll all be good. <laughs> yep. Uh, folk- Just go that way. <laughs> folk magic is wild, though, because you'll find all kinds of stuff, like when you start looking back and like, you'll be going through like the table of contents of like a book or something and it, it'll be listing the spells and it'll be like, cheese to seduce a woman. <laughs> and you're like, oh,
2: yeah, really? <laughs> or I'm like hit apples putting a slice of apple under your armpit and getting someone to eat it is a love spell hot yeah.
1: yes it is I've heard of that one I've also and I don't know the formula or anything like that but I've also heard of farting spells like spells to make people fart a lot <sighs> oh that could be
0: so useful
2: <laughs> that would oh that's great I want to hear I want to know that spell
0: <laughs> could modify for just power sharding <laughs>
1: I love a good wacky. Spell. I want to. I want to say it was an Icelandic charm,
2: like really old. I think that's where I saw it, but I can't remember. Barding charms. I like the the charms in Catherine Paulson's Paulson's book of witchcraft. People usually send me clips of that, showing me some sw- wacky spells, and they're drinking slug water, uh, drugging people, you know, eating mercury, just all sorts of stuff. And I'm like, huh. That'll I really imagine. hope people aren't trying these spells (laughs) at the time, but some of them I really want to try too, especially when I read like the Tricks, I want to try every wacky thing in that book.
0: Just to see. (laughs) Just
2: to see. Like eyes of civet passed through a, through a thurible made of sapphires and fed to a donkey. And oh yeah, I want to try all that. That sounds fun.
0: Sounds great. i will get here. me some sapphires. I was reading, that's, like, it's so funny because everyone's so, like, really intense about, like, you know, the old traditional magic. But the old traditional magic was <laughs> just buck wild. And I remember I got this book that was supposed to be, like, you know, traditional witchcraft or whatever. I'm like, oh, like, I'm so excited to learn and do this stuff. And every spell was, like, you need four human femurs from people <laughs> who were hanged for grand larceny on a Tuesday. Yep. You need a pot of mercury and like horse wang or something and I'm like I sure I got that over here in a drawer absolutely like not a problem
2: (laughs) (laughs) I love spells like that I like I like the ones that are really obvious like to make a man love you feed him lots of sugar steak and liquor yeah I mean I'd love you too (laughs) (laughs) or I like the one that was to keep a man faithful Get him sick on a mixture of mercury and ground worms so he can never leave your side. And I thought, well, yeah, he's going to be so sick. He's not going to get out of bed. I'm not sure if that's as much magic as much as that's just poisoning. poisoning. That's
0: the plot to misery by Stephen King. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. So. In, in your book, of course, we're talking a lot about, you know, regional forms of witchcraft. And you also had the regional witchcraft challenge, which just blew up all over witch Instagram um, that I participated in. A bunch of people that we know participated in. It was great fun. And it was a good challenge, too. Um, so but why is understanding regional witchcraft important, especially in in this day and age where everything seems so kind of spread out? But, but why, why is this important now?
2: I strongly believe that where you live strongly impacts and affects who you are and the magic that you're going to practice there. I also meet a lot of people who, like we were discussing earlier, they don't really know what their ancestry is, but they do know where their ancestors have been living for at least this, this, these last few generations. And they know that they have a love for what this land offers them. And I thought, you know, I I don't want to have people struggle to try to show me what their cultural traditions are. I want to see what your region looks like. What are you working with every single day of your life? Because that's bound to be different from mine. And I posted mine thinking, you know, a few other Washington state, which is my uh, post stuff from the Puget Sound that they have, it took off. And I started getting pictures from all over the world, from South Africa and Australia and France and Canada and, I mean, Southeast Asia and Africa. It's just been, it's been stunning to see people, send these pictures of what their region's magic look what magic looks like to them and it's all very very different you know what we're working with in the Northwest for luck spells or um, for hexing and stuff is' going is bound to be different than anywhere else in the world all of us are going to be working with very similar tools in that we're working with tools for luck for prayer for blessings for getting uh, for um appeasing the spirits or for feeding the spirits we're all working with these little things but they're all different kinds of things some of us are using black locust thorns some of us are using railroad spikes and some of us are using the spikes from some kind of acacia tree i've never heard of in south africa that looks amazing and i'm like that's that's awesome but what i did notice is we all had everything kind of in common in that we are all using these exact same things and i noticed most witches no matter where in the world you're looking they had a root they had a nail they had a horseshoe They had some sort of red thread, which I think that's so just witchcraft to me is, yeah, red threads, horseshoes and nails is like, oh, yeah, that's your your go to kit. You know, (laughs) that's in your toiletries. Um, I noticed how much we actually had in common. We were all just doing it a little different. And it was all based on this little slice of the world that we're living in. And that little slice of the world, that's that's everything for where we are. That's what we're using. That's where our tools come from. The clay of Of any other state is a nice thing to have, but the clay from the Schmitz Park rivers and creeks or Duwamish River where I live, clay from right here where I'm working, where my blood gets spilled, um, where my tears fall, where my work is done, that has a completely different bond with me than the tools that I can buy from elsewhere and have shipped to me via Amazon, which I'm not knocking because that's awesome. That's where I get a lot of my stuff. That's like tarot cards and stuff. But if I'm trying to work with the land and most of my practice is based on land work um, and on animism and bioregional animism, especially, I want the tools right here. And right here in Puget Sound, my cursing thorns are black locusts and hawthorns or devil's Mm -hmm. club. But maybe in the Southwest, it's from a specific cactus. Maybe their sleeping mm-hmm. herb is the California poppy. And maybe in the deep South, that's completely different. It's a completely different root. Maybe it's bryony. Maybe it's, it's bramble. Maybe it's something different. And in the North and in the Northeast, again, some, a completely different region of magic that I'll never quite know what it's like to live around. And I think that's so beautiful that people are able to bond over yes we all hex pray or bless ourselves or try to protect ourselves from hexing we all have these little bits of magic stones feathers gems all of this and it's so special and unique to each one of us and where we're living and yet we're all doing it and we're Mm -hmm. sharing in this and it proves to me that this folk magic heart it transcends cultural boundaries it transcends religious boundaries and it unites people in this very real tangible way it unites us as as spiritual humans uh-huh.
0: You posted something that I thought was really wonderful the other day where you had like a like a poppet and a nail. And you were like, what I love about folk magic is this. And you like stab the nail into the poppet means the same thing in every language. And I'm like, I love it that. does.
2: It does. And I found that. That's what the, the challenge taught me was this, this, this thing we're doing with the horseshoes. We all get this and the red thread. Mm-hmm. Pretty, I may not be able to speak to you in your language wherever you are in the world, but if I hold up a horseshoe and some red thread and a nail, we're going to have a general vibe about what's about to go down here. I like that. <laughs> 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 it's very uniting, and that's that's all I want. I want people to connect because I grew up in a family made up of of connections made by choice. And so connecting with people and trying to get people to connect to themselves and each other and to put the hate aside and find more things in common – celebrate our diversity mm-hmm. and acknowledge our differences as being both necessary and useful. That's what my aim is um, in my writing and in my work.
0: Beautiful. Love that.
1: So we're going to move to kind of a hot topic. So when it comes to American magic, uh, which is a blend of so many cultures and you illustrate that beautifully in your book and in your work, how do we traverse the issue of cultural appropriation since we're all Americans?
2: I would say that is that is the, that's the real question. I don't think a single soul has the right answer to that. And anyone who claims to have an absolute correct answer is selling you a bridge. There, there is too much nuance, too many subtle nuances to the way we have connected with each other. There are too many assumptions that we make about each other based on how we look or what we're being told. And I think it's really damaging the way that we have uh, conversations about appropriation It can become extremely hostile up front. We don't leave leeway for asking someone, well, who are you and what was your unique individual experience? I have met people who pass for white who absolutely know far more about voodoo than I've ever been encountering that have lived in this life. They are from New Orleans. They, they know things that I couldn't possibly know because to them, that was their culture exposure from the get-go and it was not separated. And I would never understand that because I'm not from there. That's not the tradition I was raised with. And for me to make that assumption based on how I perceive that person's color and, and who they are, I think would be incorrect for me. I like to judge people based on the individual experience that they're presenting to me and who they are. And I don't like the overarching statements that we make about cultural appropriation because it doesn't leave a lot of room for these individual experiences, the family experience, who raised you, who, you know, what you look like isn't necessarily who your people are or where you come from. And ethnicity and culture aren't the all defining facets of what it means to be an American. This is very complicated here. We have something that a lot of countries don't have in that we have a bunch of people from a bunch of different places and ethnicities coming together. And we're, i am noticing we're starting to segregate that again by color and segregate that by, well, they're black, they're here, they're native, they're here. And it's like, well, actually when you say black, you're talking about a lot of ethnicities. You ma- can you imagine mm-hmm. how many ethnicities there are in West Africa alone? So lumping everybody together to me feels incorrect. And I feel the same way when people say, well, white this, I'm like, well, Europe's a big place with a lot of ethnicities so, to say, well, that's, you know, I, I remember hearing people say stuff like that in um, my earlier days about separating, you know, African American systems from white magic. And I thought, you know, you ask somebody from France and somebody from England their distinct ideas of magic, and that's going to be two very different things. And to lump people together without really knowing their individual experience is disingenuous. And so when we talk about appropriation, I think we have to judge on a case-by-case basis. We have to look at the subtle nuances of where they're coming from, their culture, their identity. We have to admit that some things are not an attack on ourselves. They simply are the natural exchange that happens when cultures are crammed together under these incredibly tense circumstances. They will share. They will bond. It's not always good. It's not always bad. Sometimes it's forced. Sometimes it's a choice. Both things are true at once. It's our job to individually study and research what we're looking at instead of making absolutist arguments about what people can and cannot do in a country based on diversity alone. We are multicultural. That is it. There is no such thing as an America without a bunch of cultures and religions. And I'd prefer to keep it that way. A bunch of diverse, different kinds of people who think and talk differently. That's my version of America that I want to live in. So I have a lot of compassion for everyone who's just trying to find out, figure out where they fit there. So I, I think when it comes to appropriation, we have to, we have to make those judgments based on individual case by case people's intentions, where they're coming from, what they're doing and not make it an all overarching absolutist kind of argument. It's mm-hmm. that's exclusionary and that's not American.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Amen. And I find, too, whenever we try to, you know, categorize people as like, oh, you're this or you're that based on how people look, it always comes down to people comparing you and your, you know, ethnicity to a very dishonest, often racist stereotype of what that culture looks like. Um, and, and what the experience of that culture is like. So I, when, my, when my book came out, I had a lot of people messaging me that were like, I'm like genetically 89% Mexican. I grew up in Mexico until I was 30 and then I moved to the United States. Um, but someone on TikTok told me that I can't buy your book or participate in this work because I'm light skinned. And that the spirits of brujería will um, come and get me because I look like a colonizer. And I'm like, okay, so someone like took this caricature of what Mexican people look like with the funny mustache and the specific color of skin and decided you didn't match that. Therefore, you're not Mexican. And I'm like, there's so much that's wrong with that.
2: That is so wrong. I'm so sorry you had that experience. Having been to Mexico and seen the incredible diversity of which it looks pretty much just like here, black, Asian, white, light skin, dark skin, thick, small, tall, short, every kind of human being lives in Mexico. It's been there for a while. That is so weird to me. It's so full of ethnicities and, and what we know of brujería is, is mixed. It Mm -hmm. is a blend of indigenous and Spanish Catholicism and a few little bits and pieces from lots of places. Yeah. And why isn't that beautiful enough? Why can't that be beautiful enough to bond people who come from... Or at least have this connection to Mexico and all the beautiful things that come from there, including the spirituality that is profound and moving and accessed by people who look like you, like me, like Britain, like everybody, because all sorts of people can be looking like anything. And, and yet, for some reason, we do, we do have this weird obsession <laughs> with making sure people fit a certain thing. I, I'm with you. I get asked about my practice in voodoo a lot, and I'm like, Why? how'd you get that impression I love that. Oh my gosh.
0: All right. So last question here before we wrap up is Is there something that you wish more folks understood about this work?
2: That witchcraft work?
0: Of in in general, all of it. This folk magic, the witchcraft, is there something that you're like, I wish y'all could figure out this part?
2: (laughs) I wish. More witches who are starting out, people who refer to themselves as new witches or baby witches, or people who are just starting to find—I wish you would all, we would all listen to the negativity less and stop taking other people's opinions on who we are and what we're doing is right and wrong as gospel. I encourage people to try. If someone tells you you can't do that, the spirits will do something to you. Okay. Test that theory. Don't buy whatever bridge you're being sold, especially New Witches. If people say, oh, don't go anywhere near Ouija boards and tarot cards or this and this will happen. You know what? A lot of people come up with a lot of stuff from a lot of movies. And our fear of Ouija boards is one of those things. Our fear of a lot of things is based on movies, media and these tropes that we all practice with each other that aren't true. You know, I, I, I want to encourage young witches, don't buy whatever it is you've been sold as a guarantee. There are no absolutes in magic. That's kind of the point. You can do anything you want with this. You can come from it from any angle. And anybody who's telling you that you, it's not possible, test them. Test them. Find out how possible it is. Test your faith. If you have faith in it, damn it, test it. Don't let somebody restrict you. Magic is wild. Like nature, it is free. It is bloody. It is impersonal and yet deeply personal. So be wild and free with it. Your life is short and it will end at any moment or it's going to be very long and tedious. So take advantage of it and fill it with magic. If you can.
0: Hmm. Buck around and find out. I love that. All right. So via, where can everybody find you? Where can they find your book? Where can they get in touch with you? If you want them to get in touch with you, I don't know. <laughs> let, let us know.
2: Well, I'm on Instagram via Hedera. I'm on Facebook. Facebook. ViaHedera. Uh, you can go to ViaHedera.com I uh, I try to post more but that's where you can find some of my old research articles and if you're interested in the book you can find me on Amazon, on Goodreads or on John Hunt's Publishing or through Moon Books. Yeah, and if you need to contact me, I am I love to talk I love to talk so please email me at ViaHedera at gmail.com um, and you know feel free to contact me I, I love talking to people
0: Alright We are about right here at the time. So I think we are going to be signing off. Thank you for hanging out with us and talking about all things witchy and folk magic. And remember... Do witchcraft. Do it. Bye.
1: Support for this podcast comes from our listeners. If you would like to support Invoking Witchcraft with a one-time donation, please go to invokingwitchcraft.com backslash donate. Or if you'd like to become a premium listener, join the coven at invokingwitchcraft.com backslash coven. There you'll get access to our exclusive Facebook group for discussion and connection, as well as access to occasional workshops. We hope to see you there.